We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered death, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scripture. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen. You guys can take a seat. We're going to be in Acts uh, 1 this morning, so we're going to actually see several passages. So get your Bibles ready, or your phones, or whatever you use for that. Mike, I, uh, I appreciate that you think you've been married 50 years, but <clears throat> your wife would have to be older than 50 Oh. Okay. I was just trying to do the math back there. I couldn't figure it out. <clears throat> if you have a, uh, a child who has a cell phone, then you know that most of your communication is going to be text. But occasionally you'll get a call. And a call can only, 99% of the time, it means one of two things. I could pull you, but I know what they are. Uh, money, I need money. Or I'm in the hospital or going that way. If there's an emergency of some kind, right, or money. And maybe that's their emergency. So uh, last spring, Claire and I were out on a date, which doesn't happen very often. It was kind of a combined birthday and uh, anniversary date. Um, I also married someone much, much, much younger than myself. Um, and so we were, we were out, and uh, the kids were all doing something, so we had the phone sitting on the table there, just in case, you know, one of those things came up. And during dinner, my, the, the phone lit up, and it was my 18-year-old son's face that popped up in the picture. I was like, oh, well, this could mess tonight up, um, because it, since he's calling, it, it's, it's serious, right? So we look at each other, and then I, I pick up the phone, and I'm like, hello, Taylor. He goes, hey, Dad, I've got a question for you. And I could tell from the tone of his voice that it wasn't going to be uh, one of those two bad things. We were in the, the 1% in, 
area here. It wasn't, it wasn't an emergency and he didn't need money. So I, I could glance over at Claire and kind of give her the, you remember this, Claire, and give her the kind of, everything's fine, no worries. So I said, well, what is it you need? And he goes, well, I need to ask you something. And the implied in this was, I think you're going to know the answer. He said, Dad, I need to know how to dress like a nerd. <laughs> I mean, who, could you call somebody else? What do you call them? <laughs> well, to you all, it may be that that was the obvious person to, to check in with. Uh, how do I dress like a nerd, Dad? Uh, as if I'm the expert. So he, uh, they had some kind of a nerd thing going on in one of his clubs or something. So uh, I gave him, you know, all the information that I had. It was not insubstantial. Uh, but it was, it was it's funny. It, it, you know, I, I was surprised that we got a phone call. Uh, but that is nothing like the surprise uh, that the disciples and the followers of Christ were going through when they're, fa- they're in this 50 days or so from the point where Jesus comes into uh, Jerusalem with them and everything is glorious and then he moves into, they move into the end of the week and everything is horrible, right? High, low, okay, crucifixion. A couple of days later, Everything is, is confusing. It's the morning of the resurrection, and they're hearing that there's the risen Savior. And then even later that day, they meet him. And then they have 40 days with this resurrected Christ. He's proving himself to, him, to them, and that's what we talked about last week. And then comes this, this next event, and that's the ascension, which Chris mentioned that we we're going to talk about today. And the ascension had to be quite a surprise. And, and within, the, within the ascension, uh, several things happen, which I want to try to unpack for you a little bit this morning. Uh, if you will, go over to Acts 1, and we're going to start in verse 6. And if you will, we're going to read 6 through 10 together. Acts 1, 6 through 10. So, when they had come together... They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? So there's the context of the story. And as I began to look this week intently at the at the ascension. It it became apparent to me about myself, and I think maybe about a lot of believers, is that we don't have quite the understanding of what the ascension is and its importance in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. 
the ascension is, is, like, um, is like the doorway through which Christ had to pass for everything that we know about the church and how God relates to us in this era. So it is this uh, very fixed point and very important part of the plan of God and his plan of redemption. Uh, Tim Keller says this, he says, It is meaningless to have the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus without the ascension. Think about this for a second. It's meaningless to have the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus without the ascension. It is the detonator for all things that Jesus did. Keller kind of describes the the ascension as something like, as if it were a bomb with all the parts there, but no detonator. It's useless. It's like a house with no one who lives in it, like a, a roof over someone with no use. All of the things that we know about what God is going to do in the church and in our lives going forward after the ascension are dependent upon it. That is how God did it. And so today, what I, what I want to do is, is show you how that is, show you how important the ascension is and that everything we know about his interaction with us today is dependent on that. And talk about what it means to us. And if you're someone here today who is reading this and, and has read along with what we, we saw in the uh, Nicene Creed, and you're like, wow, that is a lot to take in. We've got resurrection, we've got a virgin birth, we've got ascension. What, what is going on? Well, I just want to encourage you, uh, listen and, uh, and decide for yourself what the ascension means. There are four things that I'm going to point out to you. One is the ascension is a is a handoff of responsibility from Christ. That's one thing that it is. Another thing that it is, is it's essential, as I said, to God's plan. Another thing is that it leads to a new level of authority for Jesus Christ. And it leads to a new role for Jesus. It's a handoff of authority. It's essential to his plan. It's a new level of authority for Jesus and a new role for Jesus. So if we... we we start the story there, and I didn't read this part, but they're on this place called Mount Olivet, which is, as all of you know, just a little short distance away from Jerusalem, right? Um, it's, a, it's like a half a mile or something. And so they're there, and uh, this is after Jesus has been with them for 40 days. And in those 40 days, he has been teaching them about the Holy Spirit. He's been interacting with them. He's been eating with them. He's been proving that he is resurrected to them. So much so, as we talked about last week, that it would completely transform their lives going forward. But they haven't been transformed yet. All the information is there, and uh, this ascension is going to be the next step in that process. In verse 6, it says, They gathered around him, this is on Mount Olivet, and they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Restore the kingdom to Israel. So, on, at this meeting where a bunch of the disciples are and Jesus is, the fact that they say at this time to me makes, me makes me think they're expecting something to happen here, right? They're gathered together for some purpose that's beyond the normal. Jesus might have called them over there, said something big's going to happen, you need to show up. So they're there and their interaction with him is, are you now going to rule and bring 
the kingdom to Israel and kick these Romans out and make everything right. Well, after all this time that he spent with them and all the teaching, they still don't seem to get it. You remember what happened the last time they asked if you're going to restore the kingdom? That was just before the crucifixion. You, you, it's only a month and ten days. You'd think they would remember. They had this, they had this very myopic view about the kingdom of God and what Jesus was doing. It was very focused on Israel and focused on them. And you see that time and time again. The, uh, the kingdom in Scripture is a big topic. But overall, the kingdom means the time when all things are made right. When God makes all things right. And there are parts of the revelation of the kingdom that happen at different times as God has interacted with man. And we are in an age called the church age in which there is a part of the kingdom here. And that part is represented in this room. So they, they have a very small view of the kingdom and they say, Jesus, bring the kingdom now and you rule and we'll sit at your right and left hand and we'll help you and the Romans will be gone. And, and he gives them this amazingly gentle answer. It's almost like you would give to a small child. And in the answer, he's saying, no. Look in verse 7. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the time or the day that the Father has set by his own authority. Not going to tell you. It's okay. But I'm not going to bring the kingdom right now in the way that you expect it. But here comes a surprise for them. Here comes something they're not expecting. Look at verse 8 with me. <clears throat> he says, but, so this is, that's a pretty important but. Instead, you could use that same word, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, which we're going to learn about next week, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I'm not bringing the kingdom to you right now, the kingdom is going to come through me via you to the world. It's not what they were expecting. They asked for him to bring the kingdom, and he says to them, you'll bring it to the world. Do you see the difference? He's making a handoff to them of his plan of redemption. And it has to do with the kingdom that they, they thought that they wanted, the kind that they thought that they wanted. But he even... He qualifies it for them in ways that didn't make sense to them. He said, well, you're going to bring it not only to the Jews here in Jerusalem, but you're going to bring it to Judea. And that was okay with them, but you're going to bring it to Samaria. And we all know what they thought about the Samaritans. And to the ends of the earth, which meant the Romans and beyond. <clears throat> that was a surprise to them. And when I read that passage and I see Jesus interact with them, and he's so gentle with them, it reminds me of myself. Because what I do is in my world, I build my own little kingdom of all the things that I think are right and good and holy. And then I ask God in my prayer and almost all of my prayer to bless that kingdom. 
That's what I do. It is a stretch for me to step outside in my prayer life and say, God, bring your kingdom. Bring reconciliation and hope to this world and let me be a part of it. Bring reconciliation. Bring your kingdom even into the family that I walk with in this church. I uh, went to a conference a few years ago and there was this guy there. He, uh, his name is Mike Pilavachi. He's a speaker, um, a preacher in England. Um, have you heard of him before? That's because you're from the United Kingdom. <clears throat> and since he has an English accent, I believed everything that he said. <laughs> um, that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, she just said, yeah, that didn't work on my husband. <laughs> Funny. He was. He was. He said, "Here's what the church does." He says, "The people in the church, when they move into a community, they're excited and they they are engaged in in engaging in bringing the good news of Jesus and handing off the kingdom and inviting people to be citizens of the kingdom. And then, as soon as several people gather around that, they begin to." focus in on each other. You know, we all know this, and I'm, uh, I don't want to beat us down a little bit, but this is what the church does. And then we start to build these walls, and pretty soon we've got this big castle. And we're all inside there, and we're working on our kingdom, and our Bible studies, and everything that we're doing. We're growing that kingdom for ourselves. And he, this was an outreach conference, so he said, and then occasionally, the, the Christians will get all excited about bringing more people into the castle. So they'll have a big exciting thing and they'll roll down the gates and they'll run out and do what they can to bring people back in. Shut the gates. <laughs> Keep the world out. And that, that metaphor has always stuck with me because it, it seems to resonate when I, even when I, um, well, when I look outside the doors or the windows of this building and I see people walking by and driving by, pushing their kids, whatever, I think, do they have the common understanding of the world for the church? And, and you know what that is. That's that this is a fortress of unmerciful people, right? So when I park my car out there, I ride up, and I come in, and there's invariably people walking by, and I wave, I think, what are they thinking? Are they thinking, there goes that guy, I don't know, into the fortress of everything I hear in the media and everything I see is that these people are unmerciful and have all the right answers to impose upon the outside world. And I, I know that that is not the theme or mode of this church, and I, I certainly don't want it to be. But we, just, we need to be aware that it's very easy for us to become myopic about the kingdom and say, Jesus, just bless this thing. But, but remember, like the disciples, um, he, he has empowered us, and we'll see this next week by the Holy Spirit, to be his witnesses to, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Every believer here is a conveyor of the kingdom. And we're to do that by speaking and living the gospel so that all have the opportunity to become citizens. Okay, the next thing. The ascension is essential to God's plan. Look over at John 
16. I think we've got a, are we going to have a screenshot of that or are we still broken down? John 16. Jesus let the disciples know early that him leaving and not being there anymore was a part of his plan. It wasn't going to be a surprise to them, okay? And now they didn't, uh, they didn't understand that fully, but he let them know early. And in John 16, you see that in verse 6, we'll start. He says, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus makes it very clear. If I do not go, if this thing does not happen, then the Holy Spirit will not come. They don't know the implications of that like we do now as we look back. And he says really clearly, it's to your advantage. I'm going to have to go. Don't be sad about this. When this happens, don't be sad. For us, we can't imagine really, maybe we can, but it's not common for us to think of the church with a live Jesus. We interact with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And that's why Keller says that it's the, that this is the, uh, the ascension is the detonator that brings all of the things he did into this new understanding that we have today. If you remember when Mary Magdalene interacts with Jesus around the tomb, she goes to the tomb, it's empty, she sees him and she just grabs onto him. And his reaction to her is, hey, let go because I have to leave. And it, it almost sounds like he's being rude to her when you read it. it it's a little bit confusing. But it, the point is, he says, you're probably you're squeezing the heck out of me. I can't breathe. Um, but second, he's, he's at least saying, um, in, a, in a metaphor form, I'm leaving. You need to understand that holding on to me is not, is not what you need. She's thinking, all I need is for you to be here. Don't ever leave us again. Don't do this again. And he's saying, no, the best thing for you is for me to leave. It's to your advantage. Okay, now to the actual event of the ascension. This is in Acts 1.9. After he said this, after he said these things to them, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So he's just laid on them this concept that they're going to take his kingdom and move it out. That was a surprise, but this is probably a bigger surprise. He's gone. That's it. And the thing that we're going to see here is that the ascension was... um, not just a physical thing that happened where Jesus is lifted up in some miraculous way, but it's a change in his authority. And that's, what it, that's the most important piece about what this, this picture of ascension means. Uh, turn over to Ephesians 2.20. I mean, excuse me, one twenty. Ephesians 1.20. This is, this is an incredible passage about the ascension and what it means to us. Ephesians 1.20. We're going to start just a little way, little way into verse 20. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, 
and over every name that is named, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and he appointed him head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's a beautiful passage. And it describes what's happening. We, the disciples see this ascension, but Paul fills us in later in Ephesians about what actually is happening there. The theological ramifications, the political ramifications in the spiritual realm and on the earth. Uh, now, when he says Jesus is raised to the right hand, I think we read a creed the other day where, or something where it says that Jesus is seated on the right hand of God which seems kind of uncomfortable. Uh, just kidding. I probably shouldn't say that. Um, it just sounds odd, but he's seated at the right hand of God. And to us, that doesn't mean a whole lot for someone to be seated on our right hand or by our right side. But in that culture, it means everything, especially to these men. When they hear that Jesus is at the right hand of the ruler, it means everything to them. And that's a, that's a different kind of... Um, it's a different... We wouldn't describe things that way, but we might understand it when he fulfills that, when he uh, defines that authority here. He is far above all rule and all other authority, all power and all other dominion, above all other name that is ever invoked from past, present, or future. And everything is under his feet. And that is... That is in such contrast, this, what happens in the ascension to what happens when Jesus is incarnated and becomes a man. Do you remember in Philippians 2? Let me read it to you. Verse 6. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, becoming obedient to the point Make sure I say that right. In becoming found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So there is this ascension that brings this honor and place of authority, and then there is the uh, incarnation, which is the emptying of all of that authority. And I know, I realized I was studying this, I know a lot about the incarnation. Because we got Christmas, we got all kinds of decorations, we got songs, we got everything else, but we don't have a whole lot about the ascension. But do you see how they're sort of parallel together? I'm not saying that's wrong. The Bible doesn't make a whole lot out of the ascension, but the importance of it is just as critical. He, he emptied himself and came to us. And he, again, returned and was put in. And there's lots of passages about the glory that he is there in because of his faithfulness and his sacrifice. But there's one more thing about his authority that's very important to us. In the end of verse 22, it says, God appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him in every way. The ascension brought the introduction of the church and says the church is his body. 
And by his body, it doesn't mean that the building, the buildings of the church are his body, does it? It means that we are his body. We are his hands, his feet, his voice. It's, when you look at the scripture and you see how it ties together, it's amazing how it makes, it, it is amazing. We are his body and the church is made possible and everything, like I said, we understand about it is made possible because of the ascension. It's the doorway through which he had to walk to make what we know make sense. Okay, one more thing about this. The ascension means this new role for Jesus. And one more passage I want to take you to. This is to the right, 1 John 1, 1 John 2, the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verse 1. This is where we hear about Jesus' new role. And listen to this. My children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the world. His new role is to be our advocate before the Father. Now, that is something that, had to have, that happened after the ascension, and it is critical to us. I learned, uh, it doesn't take much to learn, that you want a good advocate or a lawyer when you're in court or if there's any threat of any court situation. Uh, you want to contact the most powerful lawyers with the most respect and all the names on their list of their name, their, their, uh, their firm, have the most respect so when one little letter comes from them, it changes things, right? That often happens. You always go to the top. And in God's court, we have the best advocate. I think it names him in there. It says, uh, yeah, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That he is our advocate. But there's another little nuance to that that is critical and it's where it says that he is the propitiation for our sins so that when he defends us before God he can say they are dead in their sin there is nothing that they can do to please you God or he has you can put your name in there she has but then as you know Jesus steps out and says but God, because of my sacrifice, I, stand, I take their place and their punishment. We all understand punishment. When things are, are, when sin is committed, when wrong is done, there is punishment. And Jesus takes that punishment for us. And he does, he reminds God of that every time. And I just, I want you to think with me about this and encourage you to, to meditate on this a little bit later on as you consider the ascension and what it means. But consider the incredible importance of having Jesus as our advocate. In every way that you are weak, you have an, the advocate. In your condemnation for any reason of yourself, 
you have the advocate who loved you enough to die for you to represent you before God. In your pride, in your materialism, in my search to build my kingdom, to be satisfied in in beauty or aesthetic or nature or accomplishment, we have this advocate before God. We can rest knowing that Jesus Christ, the righteous, is in that place for us, and it came about after the ascension. So we have this handoff of responsibility, and it was handed to the disciples, and therefore handed to us, the body of Christ. The ascension was essential in God's plan. It was a change of authority for Jesus. He is now over all things, going from humbling himself to the point of death on a cross to being raised above all things. And he is our advocate. All of these things are inextricably tied to the ascension. So, when I think about how to take this information and move forward, and how it should shape me, I think at least... Um, the consideration of the fact that we have this incredible advocate should move me. That should move me to worship. That should move me to change. That should move me to follow him, to realize that I am the body of Christ. should change me. And I think that probably we should heed, and I'll close with this, the words of those angels who confronted the disciples when Jesus left, and they said, why are you standing there? Well, let me pray for us and we'll be. (laughs) Father, I just uh, come to you and I I know that uh, there is no way that um, the meager and feeble words that I have to say here can address the amazing thing that the ascension is and and how it unlocks the resurrection and takes us to a new place uh, of understanding of who you are and what you want and how you're introducing the citizenship in your kingdom through us. And God, though the fullness of the kingdom is certainly not here, things are not right. God, but we look forward to that day and we thank you for allowing us to be a part of that. Lord, I pray that each individual in here would consider those implications of the truth of the ascension and all of the things that it means about where your son is and, and how he defends and loves and has sacrificed himself for us. Lord, we're just amazed by that. So we, uh, we offer these, uh, this morning to you and we ask that you will change our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.